The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy sitting in for Hugh Linehan this week. Well, it's the morning after the budget day before. How was it for you? Are you a young person looking forward to cruising around on half-price public transport, perhaps in search of opportunities to use your free contraception? Are you a pensioner flush with an extra fiver a week? Will your fuel bills be monstered by carbon tax increases? Will it make your childcare a bit easier? And what of the political effects of this budget, as the coalition seeks to plot out the future where politics meets economics after COVID? So Cliff, if I can start with you, you're basically suggesting, I think if I read it correctly in your analysis piece this morning, that Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue basically hoodwinked their colleagues into this budget by not revealing to them the full extent of the economic surge and consequent tax receipts that they've enjoyed in uh, in recent months. Is is that a fair summary? Very strong words, Pat, very strong words. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been interesting over the last few months when you look back at it now and look look at the way that it's panned out. So we had the summer economic statement, which was done on the basis of pretty conservative uh, economic forecasts, given the kind of evidence that things were actually starting to pick up and uh, spending ceilings were set for next year. And indeed, the Fiscal Council uh, was critical of the summer statement on the basis that it might be going too far in terms of uh, spending in the next in the next few years and, and not outlining how it was going to be paid for. Then you roll on a few months, just before the budget, about 10 days, the, the economic forecasts were, were, were increased and the two ministers were still playing the line with, look, we have to stick within the limits. The Fiscal Council have told us we have to be cautious, don't know what's going to happen next year and all that. And then the weekend before the budget, we finally get the white paper, uh, which gives the kind of financial forecast on how the finances are going to improve on the basis of these uh, improved economic forecasts. And the numbers are just extraordinary. I, I was, they published this thing kind of at about half or half nine or quarter to ten at night. So I was here last Friday night kind of reading the numbers and reading them again and saying, have, have I misunderstood something here? I recall getting a rather excited text message from you late, uh, late at night on this subject. I know, I know. Sad, sad indeed, you're right. But anyway, it was a remarkable change because borrowing was due to be 20 billion this year, over 20 billion. Uh, and the forecasts have been cut to 13, just over 13 billion. And that's a, that's a really significant change in a few months. Normally you might see maybe a billion one way or the other. Uh, and, and most of it was due to, to buoyancy and tax revenue. There were some spending issues as well and spending coming, coming in less than expected, although still increasing very strongly. And then looking at next year, uh, even after the budget, uh, we had thought, or, or at least the summer economic statement had speculated that borrowing next year might be over 14 billion uh, on the basis of the way the economy is going. And now it turns out it's, go- it's going to be just a bit over 8 billion, 8.2 billion. So th- these are really, really significant changes. Uh, and, and I suppose uh, allowed the ministers to uh, come forward with a with a reasonably generous package, even though everyone is saying, you know, it's not enough, I want more and all that, while at the same time uh, bringing, down, bringing down borrowing. I think there's no doubt that if the other cabinet ministers had known six weeks ago, four weeks ago, that this was going to happen, that there would have been a lot of calls for, for, for more, more, more. 
but the reality of it was kept under wraps late enough, I think, that um, that they got away with it. I think, um, on the basis of some inquiries made on the subject in recent days, that there was quite a push from some of the spending ministers and possibly even from the centre of government in the last week to expand that 4.7 billion package. But the two budget ministers, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue, basically fought, fought that off, which I think, Jack, tells us something about how this government operates internally and maybe about the strength of that mcgrath Donahue axis within government. Yeah, I think it might also uh, tell us something about the the good political instincts of Norma Foley, who seems to have been the last minister to sign off her budgetary allocation uh, late on Sunday evening and, and managed to get record allocations to the special needs sector. Perhaps she sensed in the waters that, you know, um, there was some more money sloshing around and if she held out, she might get a, a greater allocation. But to, to the broader point, I think that's true. I think that, you know, the, the McGrath-Donoghue axis, um, I remember at, at budget time, Last year, someone unkindly remarked to me that it was the only functional part of a vastly dysfunctional government. I don't know if that's still true, but it's still certainly true that it's the strongest part of um, of this government. And, and I think that the, the reasons for that are pretty clear and obvious. Uh, they reach back to the confidence and supply era when McGrath was, you know, he was he was actually deeply involved in the budgetary in the budgetary process and budget making. And if he didn't have veto power on some things, he certainly had uh, significant power over over saying which which measures went ahead or not. And and that the strength of that relationship has carried over into the government and has been also forged and strengthened again by the fact that even though we've had two budgets under this government, we've had such an extraordinary level of fiscal interference and, and, and economic support that like, if you throw in July jobs last year, which was, I think, a seven billion plus package, and then the kind of two forays into the economy that, that went hand in hand with the two big lockdowns, that's March of 2020, and December, January of 2020-2021, there's actually been a huge amount of action through those departments, a huge amount of money flowing out through those departments and into the real economy, supporting the demand side of the economy as um, as the, the public health restrictions really bit. So I don't think it should be any surprise that, you know, this relationship, and I think it's it's to the favour of government that this relationship, the most important bilateral ministerial relationship, remains strong and seems to have been strong enough to hold the line against those um, those inquiries that would have come across both from the centre government and from line ministers over the last couple of days. Seamus, uh, just on, 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 on the related topic, if a 4.7 billion budget was appropriate, as the two ministers maintain it to be, uh, when they set their summer economic statement and and thus setting the the budget parameters at a time when uh borrowing was expected to be much much higher and the economic turnaround that Cliff described earlier had not yet really uh, occurred or manifested itself in the tax figures H- how is the same budget appropriate now if if, if it is <laughs> Tell us if you think it isn't, of course. Like, I think in Ireland, we're finding it difficult to wean ourselves off the, the old McCreevy line of when I have it, I spend it. 
uh, and basing budgetary forecasts on changes in numbers that happen over a short period uh, isn't how uh, our budgetary policy should be set. Uh, when it comes to the size of this budget, I think uh, whether it was a 4.7 billion budget remains to be seen. Although it was budget 2022, there was a significant number of spending increases for, for 2021 uh, that were all that were also announced uh, and they could have been built into the base. So, so maybe there was there was more than, than the 4.7 billion. But the, the, the process of setting the parameters for the budget has to move away from that, that short-termism. And what the, the Department of Finance and the Minister of Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure and Form are now saying is that the, the size of the budget is based on the medium-term growth potential of the economy. So what is sustainable over the medium term, not what comes in on a short day-to-day -day basis. So, for example, in a couple of years' time, we could, for example, see a shock in corporation tax in this late-night Friday night paper that comes out before the budget. Uh, does that mean that we should slash the amount that's available uh, in resources in the budget a couple of days later? No, uh, we shouldn't have based uh, our spending in the first place on maybe such temporary revenues. So I think a more medium term view. Um, and it must be remembered that the, the bounce back in the economy now is indeed temporary. We're comparing it to, to 2020 and 2021 when large parts of the economy were shut. Um, the growth that's happening now is just getting back to where we were before. Perhaps when we were comparing and looking at the economy, it should be done in terms of levels. How close are we to where we were in 2019? And if you look over that period, like government spending ha has risen pretty rapidly over that period. In 2019, excluding interest payments, uh, government spending was um, just over 80 billion. Uh, next year, uh, it'll be in the mid 90s if you strip out the COVID and strip out the interest. So it'll have gone from 80 billion in plus in 2019 to 95 billion or close to it uh, in 2022. And that is a, a pretty rapid rise. But it is actually maybe in line with the, 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 the medium term and potential growth of the economy. So I think if we can move away from the when I have it, I spend it mentality. And I understand why government ministers can see figures improving. And there's no doubt there was a significant improvement in income tax, corporation tax and a significant drop in spending elsewhere. Uh, but I think the approach... Uh, of looking over the medium term is the right one, uh, but whether the political system can hold to it remains to be seen. Do you think there's something kind of fundamentally flawed about the process of ministers bidding? I mean, Jack referred to earlier about Norma Foley holding on until late and thus getting the benefit of maybe a bit of looseness that might have been there at the end or some unallocated resources that might have been there at the end. I mean, I've spoken to ministers many times who've been involved in the, uh, in the budget process and the dilemma for them is always when to settle, when to strike a deal with, uh, with finance and public expenditure. Do you do it early and get as, you know, as big a chunk as you possibly think you can at that stage or do you hold out you know, do you play the game a little bit longer in the knowledge that everybody has to settle at some stage? And if you go right down to the wire, maybe you can squeeze a few extra quid out of it. But that sort of uh, antagonistic uh, process whereby, you know, ministers are always looking for extra resources for their department without really any thought given to how that impacts on, you know, central government figures. Do you think there's something flawed about that? Yeah, I think it, it further exacerbates this sort of short-termism that's going from, from year to year. Like in Ireland, we do have um, ministerial expenditure ceilings, which are supposed to be set over a three-year period. But of course, they're revised every year. 
Um, so you do get this sort of bidding and bargaining and looking for what's happening. Uh, whereas in other countries, they tend to have a more medium term budgetary framework. Uh, coalition governments at the start set out what they're going to do over a three, four or five year period. And they say, look, in year two, we'll do this. In year three, we'll do this when the resources are available. And, and there tends to be not quite a long term view, but at least more medium term rather than going year to year. Uh, like in Ireland, we, we don't tend to have those uh, medium term plans. We don't know what the changes will be even two or three years down the line. But and maybe if ministers knew what their budget would be, it actually would be in two or three years. They could make plans and they say, look, we're, we're focusing on this this year. The extra resources next year will go on this. But we have this short term, this bit of a game, this competition. Who's holding out a bit longer? It, it kind of contributes to a small sense of instability, not hugely. I think uh, there are other factors that lead to our instability, but it does sort of limit the ability to do medium term planning. It's worth um, pointing out as well, though, that while this is perhaps an injurious um, thing that we have to put up with in terms of budgetary policy making, I think the political system quite likes this. Like it, it's quite good for ministers to be able to, you know, sally forth into the budget negotiations with a, a kind of modish or, or fashionable policy goal in mind and emerge from them holding that aloft and saying, look, I delivered on the topical thing. I delivered on the thing that the media and my constituents are most worried about at the moment. So it's it's one of those things where perhaps should, the, 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 the competing priorities between, you know, like sober policymaking and political realities come into sharp relief. Is there a reality behind that or is it kind of theatre? You know, I was wondering when I heard the Norma Foley stuff, you know, was was there a bit of a minister kind of uh, saying she's putting up a great fight and then declaring a great victory afterwards? Or, 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 or is there a reality behind that? Is everything kind of sorted two weeks before the budget, really? Reality or theatre, this thought did cross my mind when I was writing the lead on Sunday, but mostly I was just glad to, to have something to put in the lead slot. So there's, there I think we should, well. in fairness, I think we should acknowledge that it may not just be the politicians who are addicted to the budget circus. I think there may be some extent to which the media partakes fully in, uh, in the spectacle. But what I was... What I was going to ask you is that if this budget is, you know, is built against a background of this extraordinary economic surge, how long is that surge likely to continue? Is it something that blows itself out over a couple of months or is it something that lasts a bit longer and therefore contributes to one of the kind of problems in the background for this budget, which is the spectre of inflation. Yeah, it's, it's a hard one to call. And as Seamus said, you know, a lot of it is obviously a bounce back from last year when you look at the figures because half the economy was closed for a large part of last year. I, I think it'll continue into next year. I think there is some reality to it and the multinational sectors seem to be still doing very well. I was talking to people in uh, a range of sectors for a piece I did for last weekend and really struck by the, um, the level of busyness they're reporting. Everyone in professional services, everyone in restaurants, pretty much across the economy, everyone's saying flying, busy. Their main problem is finding staff. Their main problem is paying for staff. So I think it'll I think it'll run into next year and maybe to the middle of next year. Beyond that, really, it's kind of a question of who knows. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty not only about the Irish economy but about the world economy's exit from from the pandemic. You know, we haven't had, we're not used to seeing this. We've no no idea really how this is this is likely to work out. But you're right, the inflation question and the whole clogging up of supply chains, labour shortages, all those kind of things, 
have been put down as temporary factors, but we, we really don't know whether they will be or not. And I think listening to central bankers over the last while, there's kind of a, there was a lot of confidence over the summer that this was short term. And now there's a degree of kind of caution being baked into comments. So it's very hard to see where things are going to be in the, ne- the middle of next year, where the interest rate outlook is going to be in the middle of the next year. I think the economy enters will enter 2022 moving very strongly. But after that, I'm not sure really. Um, and obviously that's going to, that's going to frame a lot of things. I mean, if, 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 if you take the argument that, that growth is going to remain strong in the economy and we're not going to see a big fall off in corporation tax, then it does give, a, I guess, a better platform to kind of look at funding the, the things that we now look like we're going to plan to do over the next uh, few years, a bigger state that everyone has spoken about, uh, more spending on health, kind of a permanently higher level of government spending and therefore a permanently higher level of tax. And I think Pascal Donoghue has kind of done this as a process so there was no way that was going to happen this year and uh, no way any taxes were going to go up this year. But you might note that he has asked the Commission on Tax and Welfare to report next summer, which is going to look at all these issues. And I understand the discussions around that table are already fairly robust. So this this is going to start coming into, into, into focus, if you like, in next year's budget. OK, we're looking at all these greater social entitlements. We're looking at better sick pay. Uh, we're looking at higher spending. How are we going to pay for it? Um, how is this going to be funded? How is the whole thing about the aging population and the, and the green agenda going to be paid for? There's a lot to play for, I think. And Seamus, just on that point of the of, of the bigger stage, you've referenced to 2019 earlier on, because you know one of the biggest differences between now and then is that there is, you know, it seems a political commitment to a bigger state with a greater level of social provision, not least in housing, but also in uh, in in other areas, and is that bigger state can that be paid for by growth, which is what people in government tend to say? Are as Cliff has suggested, are there going to be more difficult des- decisions on rising taxes inevitable to pay for that bigger state in the future? Uh, no, I don't think growth on its own can pay for a bigger state because if we have uh, more economic growth, you will be looking to to maintain people's living standards. You, you can't have the economy growing uh, and then having saying we're not going to increase public sector pay in line with, with private sector wages or we're not going to increase um, social welfare payments uh, in line with wages or other incomes in the economy. Uh, so growth on its own isn't going to pay uh, for a bigger stage. You, you want to be having everybody having the higher living standards uh, that that growth should bring. If you want to increase the size of the state as a share of the economy, uh, you're going to have to pay for it somehow. Uh, So temporarily, at least, you could pay for it by borrowing. Uh, But as we've seen in this crisis, the the importance of a government having borrowing capacity when it needs it. We saw in 2008 what happens when a government doesn't have borrowing capacity when it needs it and the problems that emerge. So We've seen that you can borrow money and borrowing is right for governments to do, but only in certain occasions. If we are to have a higher state, it should come from uh, sustainable revenue sources. It shouldn't be something that rises and falls with things like corporation tax or economic growth, etc. It should be put uh, on a stable footing. Now, can we do that in Ireland? I'm not necessarily um, sure. We have plenty of people who do argue uh, for more government provision of services and supports, but then trying to find the resources to provide it, to actually pay for that. We can always say, don't tax me, don't tax D, tax the fella behind that tree. Uh, and you have, whether it's the, the US multinationals uh, or, or high income individuals, um, but whether putting our vital public services on a basis of revenue sources that might not be sustainable uh, isn't different. European countries, other European countries do it. 
uh, but they do tend to raise much higher levels of tax right up and down the income distribution. Like the, the big difference between Ireland's income tax raising and other European countries is the lo relatively low amounts we collect uh, at the lower end of the income distribution. Towards the middle of the income distribution, we're close to average. Uh, and once you get, get towards the top of the income distribution, we're actually not far from the average. So whether we want to change it, like a progressive income tax system brings benefits. Uh, it reduces inequality. It, it facilitates uh, more disposable income at the lower end of the income distribution. But it does then come for a cost in terms of the overall amount of tax revenue collect. And it's no easy choice. Um, if we want a larger state, these are the sort of issues you must face up to. Do you want to increase income tax at the lower end of the distribution? It's not palatable. But where, where additionally can you get the resources for the larger state, it seems, that we now want? Jack Sinn Féin would say you get those resources from, you know, from people, from higher earners and from businesses. And there seems to be certainly a, a broad public willingness to consider that at the moment. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think that, I mean, you know, Seamus is talking about the political unpalatability of um, trying to raise more taxes from the lower end of the income distribution. I mean, just think of how inimical that would be and how politically explosive that would be in the current environment, whereby you have uh, an opposition that is effectively um, pushing the the viewpoint that you know the mainstream government government governs for insiders and and that narrative is landing it seems with voters at the moment imagine if the government was to say look we're, we had we need to raise more tax we're going to raise it from the lower end of the income distribution it would just be it would, it would be utterly politically toxic and, and and folly and it would um harden that division harden that sense but i think that the idea that there is somebody else to tax more heavily is one that has political currency at the moment, be it um, hiring higher earners, US multinationals, whatever. And you saw that in the recent debate over PRSI when the, when the advisory papers came out before the budget and it recommended effectively raising PRSI across the board. And Sinn Féin said, no, we're only going to raise it on, on the employer's end of it. So that sense that there is somebody else to tax and they're not being taxed as a result of a political choice that is inbuilt into the kind of the 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 Irish political mainstream's uh, mainframe approach, that is something that is salient. It's landing with voters. We see that opening up a gap in our most recent polling of ten points between Fine Gael and Sinn Fein. So I don't think that we should expect those kind of threads, those narratives within the political discourse, to go anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk more about the politics of it um, shortly, but but Seamus, before we go to a break, I just want to ask you, your former chief knob on the Fiscal Advisory Council. Fiscal Advisory Council, not under your stewardship, has been uh, quite critical of the government in recent months. But last night gave, it seemed to me, maybe two cheers for this budget. Whoa, whoa. Did you see that? What was your your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I think early on in the summer, I think the Fiscal Council were sort of critical of the way the figures were presented uh, by the government. They had the stability programme update, which really was a very mechanical and technical exercise and offered little insight into what was going to happen over the coming years. And then we had the summer economic statement, which actually was a bit better. Um, there was a, a big change in the figures, the size of the debt and the deficits over the future. But they actually were more realistically based on what was going to happen. Um so I think the, the criticism early in the year was about the unrealistic nature of the figures and then the, the summary economic statement was a bit better. And we had this move to 
the more medium term plan that government budgetary package sizes would be based on the potential growth of the economy. And I think that the Fiscal Council were in a sense supporting this more medium term view and um, some of the, the initial comments from them this time around seem to be supported. I think they will go through the detail of the figures to see how closely um, the ministers actually have held to, to the position they said they were going to take. So we, we've heard frequent references to that 4.7 billion package. As I said earlier, uh, I think once we look at some of the changes for 2021 and if they were built into the base for 2022, maybe the announcement yesterday uh, actually were, were slightly better. So I think if I was looking at it with a fiscal council hat on, you would be relatively pleased with the, the change in approach being taken, hopefully putting things on a more sustainable footing. If they got close to it on this occasion, again, you'd be, as you say yourself, maybe going for those two cheers uh, for, for what's happened. Uh, but I think once they dig into the detail, and it'll take a couple of weeks for them to dig into the detail and, and publish their full report, maybe towards the, the middle of November, uh, there probably will be praise for the approach taken, but I'd hold fire yet on whether the figures uh, actually are reflective of what was announced yesterday. OK, well, we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, um, I want to ask Jack about the political reaction in Leinster House. And you're very welcome back. Jack, you were, along with the rest of us, were once more prowling the corridors of Leinster House, wailing backbenchers and ministers alike yesterday. Uh, my sense is that there was a certain sort of kind of brittle nervousness on the government side about the budget. No one was finding specific fault with it, but they were worrying that the largesse was spread perhaps too thinly to achieve any sort of a political bounce. What was your what was your sense of it? There's always a, a kind of intake of breath after the budget. You know, um, there's a moment where all the hacks and the opposition are combing through it and parsing what's in there and trying to find either, you know, a massive unexploded landmine that the government has has stepped on or failed to, to diagnose as a political risk or just trying to identify a theme, you know, like this is the budget for carers or this is the budget that leaves out, um, you know, take any interest group. Um, and and, and there's, a, there's a kind of moment where people are waiting to see does something attach does does something land in that space and and that moment went on for for quite a long time yesterday um and i would argue still that that nothing major has emerged in that space to define this budget so i think that that you're right that the biggest political risk such as there is one is the sense that you know this does a little bit for a lot of people and therefore doesn't feel like it does very much for anyone at all and and you know it might just be a bit of a, a damp squib budget and, and and I think that that's probably no bad thing from the perspective of the the financial uh, and economic ministries um who probably would quite like uh, stability at, at this stage um above all other things in terms of risks of blowback on specific things renters I think you know there's, there's an absence of a particular a particular intervention in favor of renters there and um, there's a, a limit on the free contraception program uh age 25 sure who would need it after 25 <laughs> exactly yeah and um, there, there are those other things that that you know might present short-term political obstacles i think perhaps maybe one that's more medium term is they've made a big bang announcement on childcare, and um, but it's all going to be focused on freezing fees in exchange for uh, improving T's and C's for workers in the sector, which is obviously laudable. Um, people in the sector need 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 a hand, but it's not going to make you know 
the point of access cheaper for parents anytime soon. So I think that parents will be looking around and saying, well, you know, I'm still paying another mortgage or whatever in childcare. Um, but to, to, to bring it full circle, you know, I think when, when you're talking to backbenchers in particular and, and, and perhaps even backbenchers who may be known to be on, on the grumpier end of the spectrum and they're saying, you know, pleasantly surprised, n- m- much ado about nothing. You know, Willie O'Dea was looking for 10 euro in the pension, which was never on the table. He's obviously naturally a little bit disappointed that it doesn't come through but there's there's no massive bl- blowback from the backbenches and I don't think any of the attack lines necessarily from the opposition are landing so I think it's a budget that will move through the political system fairly quickly without making much of an impact. Cliff, one of the functions of a budget in political terms is like a, a sort of a klaxon for the government to broadcast a message on a day that people are actually tuned into what politicians say, which is not always the case uh, for for most people. We should constantly remind ourselves. So, you know, if, if this budget is a political klaxon, what is its message? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I was thinking of that watching, uh, watching primetime last night where one contributor after the next was coming on and saying, you know, not enough, disappointed, you know, feel feel we haven't been heard. You know, even 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 to the extent of business people who have maybe got a lot of money out of uh, wage subsidies and various other helps over the last year or so, and of course they needed it, and it was and it was you know every right to to to, to argue their corner. But it seems that eating bread politically has been has been completely forgotten, and and everything has moved on. And it's kind of like we've kind of come out, hopefully, of the of the pandemic or the worst of it anyway, and and. It was almost like kind of we're in a holding pattern in that budget. There wasn't kind of a a clear clear message or a clear direction, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of policy. I suppose a lot of it was uh, a lot of the political fire had been had been shot when the national development plan was published a couple of weeks ago, and there was all this talk about you know the major investments that were coming up over the next few years, uh, and that is clearly going to be a theme of the government. And and that I suppose that was followed up in the budget by by talk of improvements in areas like childcare in particular that Jack has been speaking about. Um, but I suppose two points come to mind. One is that from the point of view of this coalition, if you're hanging your hat on those kind of issues rather than you know giving people money via tax reductions or direct welfare payments, then you you, you have to deliver. So if they're saying that they're going to improve the provision of childcare. Uh, and they're going to, you know, stabilize it first, and then look at making it cheaper. There has to be kind of a strategy and a delivery to do that, uh, if they're going to kind of win back that territory that, you know, from from the opposition, and 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 the same in housing as well. The second thing that struck me looking at it was that I think this, if the if the figures do remain reasonably strong over the next few years, uh, and and as as Seamus said, you know, who knows what's going to happen with corporation tax? We, we just haven't a clue really. Uh, but but if they do, there is going to be a big argument about the level of borrowing and what's appropriate. I think with Sinn Féin taking the tack that we should, we, we should with low interest rates remaining low, be prepared to borrow a good deal more. The government has now said it's, you know, it's going to balance its books in a couple of years' time, quicker than anticipated, only going to borrow for capital purposes from next year on. So if that trend does continue, there is going to be, I think, a big debate about how we should manage the public finances uh, in, in the next few years, and particularly how and where we should invest, I think that's going to be one of the one of the key points of the next election. Seamus, there's a certain element of of, of this budget in, in in common, it seems to me, with all economic planning, which is, you know, things will be grand as long as things over which we have no control work out in the future, and all our plans are kind of contingent on that. What 
I mean, Cliff has mentioned, touched on a couple of them there, but what, what do you see as the main external risks facing the country over the coming years and how might they impact on, on budgetary issues? Yeah, I suppose there's a couple of uh, things that could happen externally. I suppose the global economy is something we're readily dependent on given the amount of trading we do. And if the global economy performs well, that will lead to, to improved economic conditions in Ireland. In terms of policy risks you could face, of course, we face the risks in relation to interest rates uh, at present. And for the last decade, they've been at historic lows. Uh, there are murmurings uh, of interest rate rises, but but at present, they remain no more than that. I think it's unlikely uh, that central banks w- would be in a rush to in- increase interest rates. And they will wait to see how the current sort of um, inflation uh, at the moment, spike plays out. If it becomes more than spike and is a level shift in inflation, then they might look at, at interest rates. But I think some of the inflation is, again, referring to the bounce back in the economy. Price of energy was, was much lower last year when large parts of global economies were shut. So let's see how much of that inflation is permanent. And if there is a rise in interest rates, that does present issues, uh, particularly maybe on the government side, just because of the size of the debt we now have, uh, which is estimated to be $240 billion, uh, by the end of the year. Yes, uh, the NTMA have locked in uh, the low interest rates for a considerable period. But if interest rates are higher, when that money rolls around again to be um, reborrowed, uh, that could lead to, to issues w- with the public finances. Like the size of the debt itself isn't a huge concern. I know yesterday the minister referred to €50,000 for every man, woman and child in the country. But we're not going to repay that. Um, that's the debt we've built up over the last hundred years. I'm not going to repay my fifty grand anyway. <laughs> True, through various crises, like with, with maybe the first big surge in the 1980s when it got to close on in euro terms at least fifty billion. By the time we got to 2008, it was still fifty billion, uh, and then we added 150 billion in quick short time, and it reached 200 billion, which is roughly where it was before this crisis, uh, and it's now reached 240 billion. So we go through these periods where significant borrowing is undertaken, but we're not going to repay it. But what we are going to have to pay is the interest. Uh, and that's why the interest rates um, are worth keeping an eye on. At the moment, they're not a concern, uh, but they could be higher in the future. Of course, then the other thing that, that could impact us globally is how multinational companies are taxed. Uh, we have seen some changes, and maybe in and of themselves, those changes aren't hugely significant. But the agreement reached uh, last week has set principles uh, that could potentially have more significant consequences down the line. We now have in place a global minimum tax for the taxation of multinational companies. That is currently at a rate of 15%. Who's to say it will continue to remain there? And we have a change in that companies now will pay at least some of their tax where they have their customers. We are a small country that make lots of things and do huge amounts of exporting. We don't have the customers. Uh, if the tax is paid where the customers are, uh, we are going to lose. And again, the initial change there won't be that significant. It possibly will lead to some losses in Ireland. But if over time you get sort of mission creep and more and more tax goes to the big countries, well, that would be a concern for us. So those are like there's the performance of the overall global economy on which we're dependent. That's what happens with interest rates uh, and corporation tax. And I view those as being things essentially that we have no control over, uh, but we should be keeping an eye on them. To which triangular squeeze making it i suppose a quadrangular squeeze you might add you know the danger of inflation as well and jack if you know if we find our ghoulies in this quadrangular squeeze over the coming years what effect does that have on politics if say a government if future governments are unable to do 
a 4.7 billion or 5 billion or even 4 billion giveaway budget, does this government have the kind of strength and coherence and resilience to deliver, you know, a neutral budget or something, you know, a lot less giveaway away than, than they've done this year? Because I have my doubts. I don't know what you think. <laughs> We should we should dwell for a moment on the the image of our ghoulies being in a quadri- quadrangle squeeze <laughs> before moving on. Um, I, I mean our our, our metaphorical uh, national ghoulies. <laughs> I mean the look. I think that um, the resilience of this government, such as it is, I'm not sure is necessarily built on this idea that you know it delivers massive benefits. Uh, through the budgetary cycle or through any other cycle, which noticeably improve um, improve the the lives of citizens. So I'm 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 not sure that it would be like a fatal blow or anything, if uh, their budgetary room for manoeuvre um, was reduced in in the years ahead. I think that one of the core messages of this government is is broadly speaking kind of competence and confidence in its reliability. Um, you know that that they can. Uh, that the mainstream can still manage uh, the economy and the political system and 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 do so competently. And um, I think that you know there, there there are risks to them being able to deliver on that though, which aren't necessarily located just strictly within the budget day itself or whatever size a budget package may be. And I think that they have correctly identified those two risks um, in the forward-looking material that they publish as as one being related to inflation and two being related to you know an upsurge in covid i think they've just take, to take the second one first i think they've probably made a reasonable reasonable sized allocation there's about 4 billion in the covid reserve fund there's about 2.8 billion in covid funding up front and they have 500 million in in european funding that is also part of the reserve fuel tank so if we do have to go into some period of public health restrictions and um, i think that you know broadly speaking would be okay i think that the real challenge that would present if it were to materialize would be how it would intersect with that other second risk the inflationary risk because we've now got this um dynamic in the economy where when we go into lockdown we build up savings and then kind of spend them quite quickly as we come out so if we were to let's say go into some form of a lockdown over christmas and winter and then come out of that next spring and there's a bunch of savings dumped into economy that has all these kind of secular trends around inflation that just presents a big economic wobble for them to negotiate and their capacity to do so will be the litmus test for for the government and whether that locates itself neatly within budget day i'm not sure but it is a big challenge finally uh, cliff charlie hahi once uh, described what he imagined to be the writers of irish times editorials as elderly protestant ladies uh, sitting in a bath as the water went cold and lapped around her, her nether regions. Now, I, I happen to know that not all of that is true. Um, but this morning's Irish Times editorial describes this budget as being all about uh, spending. If, if, if that is so, and it, 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 it's certainly true that, you know, there was nine parts spending increases to one part tax reduction in, in yesterday's 4.7 uh, billion does that make it a social democratic budget? Yeah, well, I mean the whole the whole axis of politics. I mean, you're the expert on this, but it's kind of it's moved it's moved leftward, hasn't it? There's no there's no constituency in Leinster House now, or it seems in the wider pop, or much in the wider population uh, for 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 you know a smaller state and and uh, and uh, and lower taxes. Uh, Did us all 
Michael McDougall writing this morning that uh, maybe it's time for the PDs to come back, but uh, I'm not Indeed. sure you could argue uh, what level of support they might get. Uh, I, I just don't know. But certainly the the demands, the trends, the you know the post budget uh, analysis was all on whether enough has been spent in various areas and very little on tax. And, and even if you look at the tax uh, you know reductions in inverted commas that were done, they were really just in the case of many taxpayers. Um, ensuring that if they got wage increases, and a lot of people will get wage increases, that the tax authorities aren't going to take a little bit more uh, in their incomes. Uh, you know, this has been, I suppose, a trick that uh, Irish finance ministers have used since the last crisis is that the tax bans and credits haven't been adjusted and, and, and tax has just crept up year after year uh, to be, you know, a very, a very large uh, contribution to the exchequer. So, um, you know, I think, I, I think you're right. Uh, even I suppose Leo Varadkar, who has been uh, made his name calling for tax cuts, or or appeared to stand for that uh, that policy approach, has, se- has seemed to change approach in the last uh, the last six months or so, and been calling for spending right, left, and centre. Uh, a big issue for this government now is um, is building up social entitlements. I think that that's a big uh, that's a big issue they're going to play on over the next year, uh, and to try and I think, uh, and this will be an interesting bit try and change the narrative so that people will accept paying a bit more in on the basis that they will get a bit more out in future. Uh, it strikes me in the current political kind of environment, that's going to be difficult. Uh, but I think if they are going to move towards where they want to move towards, that's uh, that's the kind of uh, argument they're going to need to make. Well, all we can say is good luck with that. And with that, our time is up, Mike. Thanks to Seamus Coffey, to Jack Horgan-Jones and to our resident old Protestant lady, Cliff Taylor. Thanks also to producer Declan Conlon and to JJ Vernon on sound. We'll talk to you next week.